How is it going, everybody? This is Sean Barnes. I want to welcome you to episode 41 of The Way of the Wolf. So this is a very special show we have today. We're going to be talking about reinventing yourself, and I could not think of a better guest to have on the show to talk through this topic. I've known this gentleman for a little over 20 years now. We met in the car racing circles or sphere is very well known for having a number of automotive websites, having all the cool cars. And about five or six years ago, he completely reinvented himself and became a motivational speaker, the host of a podcast, 365 Driven, and is actually an author of the Side Hustle Millionaire, Tony Watley. It's an absolute honor to have you on the show. Hey, Sean, thanks for this opportunity, man. It's really been amazing to watch you also evolve over the last couple of years yourself and start taking on this personal development, launching a personal brand, creating a show. I mean, good job, brother. I appreciate it. It's been it's been quite a journey, and I think there's a lot of similarities in our journey, both in oil and gas, mm-hmm. both in cars. For those of you watching or listening, we both had navy blue metallic formulas <laughs> that we were into, into racing, yeah. and um, so I, I, f- I kind of feel like I'm following a similar path to you. I'm a few years behind, but it's been an interesting journey. We're, we're both actually introverts, at mm-hmm. heart as well. Mm-hmm. And so it has been interesting. I've been watching you over the years and, and always respected your, your engineering mind and, and how all of the things that you did in terms of the racing side of things, the web development and building online communities, you were always really good at it, but mm-hmm. in person, kind of introverted and quiet, mm-hmm. quiet to yourself. And then seeing you come out of your shell, I can vividly recall back probably five years or so ago now, we were at Cars and Coffee there at Market Street having a conversation and you had just started going down this process of, of reinventing yourself. Mm-hmm. And and we're talking about how some people, you've got haters and naysayers like, why are you doing this? This is ridiculous. But for me, I had so much respect and admiration for you to, to put yourself out there on that ledge and just seeing what you have been able to accomplish is absolutely incredible. I appreciate that. Yeah, there was definitely some, I, I would say, resistance from the people that some of the people you and I know mostly in common. And, you know, the car scene, the thing is, it's a human nature thing. People are not comfortable when someone changes around them. And we always try to avoid people putting us in a categorical box. But that's what happens is when we start to hang around with peers and you make a change, whether that's in your health or in your fitness or you start a business or you're doing something or learning a new skill or new talent and you start to go in on that, it makes other people feel uncomfortable because as you start to grow a little bigger and shine a little brighter, what that does is that illuminates the darkness within them. They understand that they have the same potential, but they're not pursuing the same passion. And when they see you doing things that they know they could, but they are not doing for themselves, it's easier to throw stones at you to try to make you come back to the same box as them than it is to watch you climb out of that box. Yeah. Such a great point. We're actually going to be talking about overcoming fear. Mm-hmm. here a little bit later in the show. So before we dive into this, tell the listeners a little bit about who you were early in your career. I know I kind of touched on it on it briefly there in the opening, mm-hmm. but I, I'd like for you to paint a picture of, of who you were in, in corporate America and just so well known in the automotive space. I think it all starts back with my parents. I grew up lower middle class in a suburb, Houston of, of Houston, it's Friendswood, Texas, and my mom was a Japanese immigrant. I was actually born in Japan on a Marine base. My dad was a Vietnam vet. After he got out of the military, he worked in the chemical refineries here in town. My mom worked public schools as a cafeteria worker. And so 
I understood that my parents were both really hardworking and if they wanted to get anything, they had to go put the work in. And literally the three houses that I grew up in here in Texas were what most people would consider flip houses. They were literally the crappiest house on the crappiest streets. We would buy them, move in. My sister and I and my parents, we would restore these houses, paint them, fix things, repair them, do the landscaping. And soon enough, it would actually become one of the most beautiful houses on the street. And that's just a testament to, we always thought about nothing's really disposable. We can fix things. My dad was very mechanically minded. We always had to repair our cars because we didn't have the means to go buy the new things for a long time. And so I learned those kind of things and I started to see the potential, not only in objects, but in people that they may not see for themselves. And I've always had that, that ability. I think even looking back at my childhood, looking back, simple things like skateboarding, right? I would learn a new trick and I would be really hyper-focused on mastering it. And then I get excited about it. And then I couldn't wait to teach my friends. There was always this teaching element that I would always do, but only after I mastered something, I was really excited about it. And that carried on. If you start to look back in the history of the things that I've done has always been that mentorship. Even when it wasn't always my role and responsibility within corporate, I was always mentoring people, giving them career advice, helping them become more successful, work on better relationships. I've always been that coach. And I think that I always wanted to be a teacher and even substituted teaching when I was in college at local high schools. But I didn't want the teacher pay, man. As much as they do a great thing, they just weren't getting paid enough. And, you know, I was programmed with society's thinking that you're successful if you go earn six figures, right? And unfortunately, guys, that six-figure goal has been the same goal since the 1960s. And inflation has really kicked the crap out of making 100000 a year. Yeah, that $100,000 a year mark is it's one that I personally – was striving for at, mm-hmm. at one point in my career. And and I think even you and, and Henry have, have spoken about mm-hmm. that, that that number seems to be a magic number, but yeah. it hasn't really kind of grown with inflation, to your Isn't point. It? So talk a little bit about your experience in the automotive space. You've done LS1 Tech, mm-hmm. PerformanceTrucks.net, and, and then, let's see, you wrote a lot of articles and took pictures for magazines mm-hmm. and things like that. And then you had, you know, I was talking with Stephen Faraday years ago and he had, uh, obviously he is very well known in the automotive space, but he was talking about how, how a lot of his customers have like one, maybe two badass cars and Tony Watley has like 10. <laughs> yeah. So share with the listeners a little bit about kind of your journey in that space. I've always been a fanatic about cars. I think that it's something that we're born with, mechanically minded. I was always fascinated with World War II aircraft and army tanks and ships and submarines and cars. And, you know, cars are the thing that I can put my hands on. I can't play with army tanks and airplanes. So I I just gravitated towards them. And even going back to childhood, dude, it's my mom would buy me coloring books as a kid. And I remember she would be cooking dinner and I'd be sitting at the kitchen table every evening. And instead of coloring in the books, I'd be drawing cars and trucks and all the blank paces of the book. And my dad even noticed that. So he started just giving me blank sheets of paper instead of coloring books. And I had a a Ziploc bag full of nut and bolt washers, different sizes washers that I could trace and make wheels and tires. So I was kind of the wheel guy and the tire guy, even as a five-year-old. It's kind of going back that far, you know, because I couldn't draw circles. So he Hey, if I just trace this thing and now that cars look a little bit better, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I'm third generation type car guy. My grandfather liked the C10 trucks and Cadillacs. My dad liked 442s and Camaros and Mustangs and Chevelles. And I kind of adopted that kind of uh, lifestyle and that mindset and being able to repair things and make things. I was the first one in my family to go fast, mm-hmm. right? 
Most of them liked the cars and they liked repairing and maintaining them. None of them raced or modified things. I remember when I first started modifying those early cars, like the LS1s and the Mustangs that I owned, my dad would be like, why do you want to go ruin a perfectly great car? You're going to void the warranty. And you know, so that that's who I am. I'm a car guy. And earning money through engineering, putting myself through school was just a means to be able to afford the things that I wanted, the cars that I wanted. And you know, I got a mechanical engineering degree in University of Houston in order to go pursue working in the automotive industry. But after I graduated, I started doing these phone interviews back then. And this was mid-90s. And Detroit paid literally half of what oil and gas did. And plus, you had to go live in Detroit, which is a shithole. And I said, you know, I'd rather just stay in Houston and make twice as much money and actually be able to afford the cars that I would go work on if I lived in Detroit. So that's what I did. And I was met with most young people that are professionals that are high driven, high performers, where we're told to wait our turn and you got to pay your dues. And they create these artificial glass ceilings for you that you can't be a manager before you're 30 and all these kind of things. So had all these corporate limitations being imposed upon me. And I didn't like that because guys, I've been working in the field, construction, welding, project engineer, laborer, painter, insulator. I did all that stuff. So when I graduated, I already had eight years of experience, like practical experience on the things that I was working at in refineries. So I didn't like being told, wait your turn and being treated like someone that just graduated college with zero experience. So I started to look for a creative outlet, things that I could do and start to take control of what I wanted to make, have some decision making, learn some risk tolerance, make some extra money. And that's what I did. I started LS1 Tech in 2001, never thinking it was going to make millions of dollars, dude. It was just... I. I was teaching myself how to build web pages and I was teaching myself how to do Photoshop. I was teaching myself how to do digital photography and graphic design. And I was like, man, if I could just figure this, cause I've always been artistic. If I could just do this stuff and put it on a computer screen, maybe someone will pay me for that eventually. You know, I was learning new skills by reading books and practicing stuff. Cause the internet wasn't really that big at the time. I was just trying to figure out how all this worked. And I would code things in HTML on notepad and then go on Yahoo who are Explorer at the time and, and see what it looked like as a website. And I just yep. kept doing that kind of stuff. And that became my first side hustle really before LS1 Tech was building these one to three page websites for shops and performance car parts manufacturers because it was a barter system initially. Like MTI, everybody knows MTI oh, from yeah. the day. I traded car parts and engines and heads and cams and all kinds of stuff by building their websites for them updating their cart system, doing all that stuff. So I was literally just trading a skill that I taught myself for car parts initially. And soon enough, I had enough car parts. I was like, well, maybe I should just start charging money for this stuff. And that's really what I did. Okay. All right. So you touched on something that I think is very important. I'm always talking about the importance of, of following your passion. Now, one thing that I found interesting is, is recently I saw a video where Micro was talking about following your passion and that's kind of BS. He says, follow the opportunity and bring your passion with you. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what you just described. Instead of going to Detroit, you followed the opportunity, which was in oil and gas in Houston, and then brought your passion with you. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely love that. I love that you were able to do that. So now let's talk a little bit about who you are now. Yeah, I think that I've always evolved. I mean, it was a kind of a post I made several years ago on Facebook. And you know how most people will sign off and they'll put their title under their name? Well, I had like 20 titles because <laughs> it was 
literally my first job was McDonald's at age 15 as burger flipper. Uh, you know, so you, you can go through that waiter, burger flipper, busser, manager, teacher, engineer, like all the titles that you ever had. Like if you ever really start to think about how many titles you've had in your life. So unless you've had the exact same career since you were an adult, you probably evolved. You've probably had to change. You've probably had to improve at some point. Hopefully anybody listening to this obviously has that mindset. Maybe you're discovering that for yourself. But I had all these titles and that what that really showed is like, man, I changed a lot. Yeah. You know, a lot of people think about what is your purpose of, of life and what's your meaning of life and all these big questions. And, and to be honest, I don't think we have the answers to that until we, we discover that on our own. I think if you just sat there and thought about it, you probably wouldn't have a good answer to yourself. You might convince yourself that's a good answer, mm-hmm. but is it really genuine? And I think that I look back at even the decades of my life, I'm almost 49 for context, but... In my teens, it was just trying to fit in and, and uh, you know get a cute girlfriend and play sports. And I'd say in my 20s, it was more about trying to get an education, putting myself through school and trying to get somewhere where I can actually start to earn money, gaining knowledge, gaining experience. 30s for me was always about stacking money. It was like, hey, I got the degree. I started the businesses. I sold LS1 Tech for millions in age 34. And it was always like, hey, what am I willing to do? Go stack money so I don't have to work as hard later. I've always been thinking about, hey, I can, I'm good at delayed gratification. If I can put in a lot of work now, front load it, and then I'm going to get the rewards later, I'm fine with that. Most people want shit right now. It doesn't work that way. So I did that in my 30s, but I started realizing, like looking back at around late 30s, I'd already started, my health started to fade at, at probably 35 through 39. And I always felt like I was still that athlete, but every time I would look in the mirror, I was kind of disgusted with what I saw. I was like, you know, man boobs and like a gut looked like I was eight months pregnant. And, you know, and I, I didn't really gain a lot of weight compared to one of my heavier athletic days, but it was all in the wrong places. And I was really weak. And I remember really a distinguishing moment where I was running late for a meeting at work and the bus was late. I was commuting downtown and Instead of taking the elevator, which I knew took too long to wait for the elevator, there's an escalator right there, one of those two-floor escalators, Chevron's lobby, right, working at Chevron. And I said, hey, I'll just walk up that escalator. There's nobody on it, and it'll be on the right floor, and I can go right into the meeting. Guys, I walked up a moving escalator, and I was winded. Like two floors. <laughs> I was winded, and, and I had a tie on, and I was ready for a presentation. I felt like I was going to start sweating through it, and I was like, what the hell, man? It's like I literally walked up a moving escalator, and I, you know, I was winded. And I was like, this is terrible. You know, and I was around 39 years old at that time. And I said, no, it's probably around 40. I said, I got to change this stuff. So yeah, dude, it's a, who have I become? It's like, after that, I started really gaining the awareness back into physical fitness because what happens is men, especially we hang around with a bunch of enablers that, that really validate our excuses. Right. So when you're in your thirties and you're out of shape, you're usually looking around and all your friends are out of shape too. And you go, they say things like, oh, we don't heal like we used to, or, oh, that lower back pain is there. I mean, we were just getting older. Remember back in the day when I could chuck a quarter mile pigskin and, you know, they're acting like Uncle Rico's and they peaked and some of them are talking about they were division one athletes and they're 40 years old. It's like, yeah, but look at you now, bro. Like you're not even an athlete anymore. So when you start to hang around with a bunch of people who validate your excuses because they accept them as their own excuses, you don't really feel like an incentive to go be competitive and go push yourself. A lot of times you fall in that complacency trap. And I started to see in some people that were in their fifties and sixties that were kicking the crap out of the gym. And like, they were, they were just like fit. And I was like, man, there's no excuse for age. 
And I did have the the knee aches. It was bad where I had football injuries. Like if I'd go hiking and I, it was okay climbing up a hill, but if I was coming down, like it was excruciating pain on my left knee. So I knew like, okay, it's only getting worse. I'm getting older. I had all the excuses, man, and lower back pains because probably because my gut stuck out and I had extra weight that I was carrying. And I was weaker and I was winded. So all these things that you had to worry about, right? When I decided to go get more fit, man, that the first two months is terrible. Like you find all the aches and pains and you're like feeling like you're torturing yourself. And the, the hardest part is not the physical stuff, Sean. You know this, it's the mental part because here's how I think about fitness. It's like if you're on a scale of negative 100 to positive 100, there's a zero in the middle, right? When you're, when you're average, you're zero. When you're, when you're just average fitness, zero. When you're, when you're overweight and weak, you're negative. Mm-hmm. You're negative and you know that because you're not even average. So it's really hard to get around yourself and start thinking, man, I got to go put in months, several months of showing up with discipline and at least three days a week to start and just to get to zero. Like it's so hard just to get to zero. And I think that's what keeps most people from even stepping into the gym or changing their diet is they know it's going to take a lot of work. Guys, think about this. So you, it took you years to get out of shape. Why do you think you're going to get it all back in months? Like you, it takes sometimes several months to get it back. And once you get to back to average, now you got momentum. Okay, I'm at zero. I lost the, the fat. I'm feeling a little bit more fit. My strength is starting to come back. Now you got confidence. You got momentum and you start to carry that forward and you get into the positive side. Mm-hmm. Right. But dude, it was hard to, to get that through. And I started surrounding myself with the right people that would push me a little bit harder at around 40. Yeah, I think there's there's so much truth to that. So Phil Swanson was here a few days ago when he and I were recording. We were mm-hmm. kind of talking through it about the importance of surrounding yourself with excellence and yeah. making sure that you have those like-minded individuals mm-hmm. that can push you to be better, which is actually a really good segue into you building online communities. Obviously, you were phenomenal at doing it on the automotive side and now with 365 Driven. You are now doing that where you're positively affecting or impacting people's lives. So talk a little bit about 365 Driven and was there a pivotal moment that caused you to flip? You talked about your escalator story, Mm -hmm. but in terms of kind of completely flipping over from being automotive, which I know you're still passionate about, Mm -hmm. into this new space that you operate in. In. So I guess two questions. Was there a pivotal moment that caused mm-hmm. you to flip that switch? And then two, why do you build these communities and drive people to be better? You know, I think that for me, the community thing always goes back. My dad was a good role model for leadership. He's always been the leader of his friend circles and he kind of worked his way up through the corporate ranks. And, you know, so I got a good example of leadership. He was a Marine sergeant, you know, so he was always the one that was just going to make the decision and take the action. And so I learned that from him. Um, community building, I think it was, I just kind of learned that. I was always like the the center of my friend circles too. And I was always the one that was making decisions and leading by example. And I wouldn't ask people to do things I wouldn't do for myself, things I learned from my father. And, you know, I'm very comfortable in that role, maybe not so much as a kid, but as an adult, as I started to learn how this works and how to communicate effectively and show that you actually care about people, then you start to get the results. I think a lot of times people are focused on themselves too much and what's in it for them. And they're not going to get off the couch unless something's in it for them. And I'm always good at paying it forward and understanding that the rewards in life come later and they're not always direct. They can be indirect rewards. Let's say that you and I are having this conversation 20 years ago and here we are talking, right? Right. Maybe 
10 years from now, there's someone that you know or someone I know that's going to collaborate. It's going to create some kind of a return indirectly from us knowing each other, right? So it's not about these instant transactions in life. And for growing a leadership community, it's like just got to be comfortable making certain decisions. I think there's uncertainty in the world and everybody's looking for certain. And you got to understand that if you want to be a true leader, you got to make certain, like you got to assess your data. You got to assess the risks, all these things that we need to worry about, but then make a decision. I think there's nothing more infuriating than we go to corporate, we get these middle management ranks where people don't make decisions. They basically go, Hey, let's have a meeting to have a meeting. Let's it's not always just middle management. Yeah. Well, Sometimes. upper management. See, here's a problem like in, in corporate careers, Usually the people who are high performers will make a name for themselves by taking risks to move into management. Mm-hmm. And so what what they did really well to get them to management, they stopped doing once they get to management because they don't want to rock the boat because they're highly compensated. And they know that the harder, the higher you climb, the harder it is to replace that job, right? So they stop rocking the boat. They start doing, they stop doing what made them successful. And they just kind of languish and hang out in middle management forever. Now, executives are the ones that usually kept their persona and their drive, and they're willing to risk it all to keep climbing because mm-hmm. they know that that's what got them there. Yeah. And if they get fired, you know what? So what? They'll go somewhere else. They know that they have the ability and confidence in themselves to go crush it elsewhere anyways or start their own thing. So they're not worried about the salary. You know, that's who I was. Like, I'm just going to keep climbing. But luckily, I built these businesses that were paying a lot more than my multiple six-figure salary. Mm-hmm. So I've always had that confidence to go make certain decisions and understand that no decision is final, that it just leads to more decisions. And if we discover that this decision we made has a different or an adverse effect, there's another set of decisions to make. You just mm-hmm. keep moving it. And if you could be certain and show people you're confident and you're certain in what you believe because you've studied the data and all the analysis, that's what people are looking for. So if you want to be a leader, it's like, just be bold. Yeah. Say what you truly believe based on your own evidence, your own experience, the things that you discovered, the data, all these things. Like whatever you believe today, be bold about that, but also be willing to change tomorrow. That's the key that most people miss. They're really bold about what they believe today, you know, like political things or, or church things, or they're, they're really bold today. But the problem with most people that are not thought leaders is that they have new releva- new new un- new discoveries, new relevations, new data that comes l- later on, and it changes their belief, but they still hold on to their old belief and their old bold statements because that's who they identify as. So they're unwilling to publicly say, hey, you know what, I believe that last time, but based on new evidence, new discoveries, new data, I believe this today. Because that first part of that conversation right there, like I think some people are probably afraid of if they made some sort of a big, bold statement like you you had just Mm -hmm. mentioned, and then they come out six months, a year or two years later to say something completely different. They're probably afraid of that perception that people are going to have of this person. Oh, well, this person's a flip flopper. Yeah, I think that one statement Well, based on new information this. Yes. That's all it takes. And I think some people that's lost on a lot of people. Yeah. That's the true art of self-reliance and being a thought leader is being willing to change your opinion based on new evidence, new data, new discoveries. Most people are unwilling to do that. I mean, we got liberals out there that think like a, like a Republican, but they're not going to claim that the Republican because they're worried about being outcast by their friends and family and hurting feelings and maybe even their spouse and, and vice versa. We've got some conservatives that are 
really heavy on the conservative side, but they believe more liberal. Mm-hmm. And they're unwilling to go admit that as well. So that's just one example. And that, that's a prevalent one, right? Yeah. How many times we've seen other people, I mean, we both lean conservative side, but mm-hmm. I have a lot of liberal social side. And I have conversations with both sides. I've got clients on both sides. Yeah. And they will tell you like, man, I'm this, but I actually believe that. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, why don't you say that? Oh, now my family would disown me or, yeah. uh, or my employees would get mad. I was like, well, then you're not a thought leader. Yeah. Because if you're a thought leader, you would say, you know what? I don't disagree with everything here and here's why. Yeah. I don't agree with everything over here and here's why. Mm-hmm. Right. As long as you can clearly articulate your thoughts and you're coming at it with a data and logic. Yeah. Now there are some people that you're never going to flip. Never. And, and just realize I, I have come to realize, especially on Facebook arguments and things like that that come up. There are certain people that you can engage with and have a thought-provoking conversation and present mm-hmm. data and kind of go through both sides of the argument. And mm-hmm. then there's others where it's just a complete waste of time. Shit show. And just like, you know what? I'm not even going to engage. This is pointless. This is a waste of my time yeah. and, and energy. But I think there's a lot of people that that tow that line because they don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. They want to just, you know what? I want calm, easy waters. I don't want to rock the boat. But to your point earlier about being bold, that's how you make a name for yourself. That's how you build a brand for yourself mm-hmm. and create an environment where people look up to you and view you as a leader. And another thing, I was talking with Henry about this a few episodes ago. He is also very outspoken on his political beliefs. Mm-hmm. And my question was, what has that done to your following or your followers Mm -hmm. in terms of, are you getting more followers? Are you getting less? Like, what are you seeing? And you know, what, what we came to conclude was the fact that, okay, you're going to lose some, you're going to gain some, but the ones that you gain are going to be very, very loyal because that's probably the target audience that you want and the people that you want to surround yourself with. We have to be careful with that. Okay. Now, Human nature is, is, like you said, the vast majority of people don't want to rock the boat. They're non-confrontational. They don't want to hurt feelings. I get that. That's empathetic. It's good. That's good to have those, those thoughts in your mind because that means you're a good human. Like you care about other people, right? The problem is that if you want to be successful and create that life that you want and actually be considered a thought leader or someone who's a leader, you have to be willing to rock the boat. Because nobody follows mediocre, nobody follows warm, fuzzy average, nobody follows likable, they follow loved, right? So we go out and they're thinking that we just want to be likable and make everybody like us, but it's impossible to do that. You got to realize that anyone that's listening to this or watching this understand that everybody that has changed history and and the historical mankind, going back civilizations, the people that changed history were the ones that rocked the boat. They're the ones that took bold statements and went against the grain and, and, and pointed out the wrongs of, of things and, and were willing to risk their lives to go do those kind of things. So when you realize that the bold people are the ones that change history, not the people that are mediocre, playing average, middle of the road, riding the fence. So what makes you think about this is like all these historical people, every single one of them, no matter how good their intentions were, had critics, had naysayers, had haters. Some of them had murderers, unfortunately. They all had them. So what makes you as a listener or a viewer think that you're going to be the first human in mankind that's going to have everybody in the world like you? It's impossible. 
So when you understand that, it is literally impossible for you to be liked by everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you keep trying to do that? Yeah. Why, what's the what's the purpose there, right? And so you start thinking about, okay, there's the logic here is like no one's going to be, there's, it's impossible for everybody to like me. I need to be focused not on the 5% of people that are jerks and saying negative things and giving them too much of my energy and attention. I need to go focus on the 95% of the people that accept me or kind of tolerate me or kind of like me or they love me, right? Go focus on the ones that are on the slightly positive and higher. And that's 95% of the people, right? Unless you're just doing things with negative intentions and you're a dirt bag, obviously, then everybody hates you and you deserve that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but if you're doing things with a good intention, understand that go serve the people that are there on that right side of you and, and quit worrying about the haters and crit- critics and naysayers. Yeah. And you're going to gain the audience, dude, because... Yeah, you will push away the people that you don't want because you're going to be bold and you'll you'll drive those people away. And that's fine because it actually greatly attracts the people that you do want in your fold. But here's where I said you had to be careful about that statement, right? We're thought leaders. We want to be bold. We want to attract the people that agree with us, but we also want to attract people who have the common sense and logic to understand when you change your your platform, right? Yeah. So if you just attract all these extremists on whatever side you're in and you decide like, dude, this isn't the right thing anymore. Like this is messed up stuff. I've learned some new stuff. You want to make sure you have the right people that have the critical thinking skills to go, you know what? I agree with them. Like we all thought this was cool, but now it's not like this is wrong. Right. So if you attract pure extremism and you switch, then they're going to be the opposite of on you. They're going to be against you. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so let's switch gears a little bit into overcoming fear. So for one thing for me, and I have no doubt a lot of, of listeners, experience is a, is a fear of public speaking. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to use that as an example. Now, have you ever been afraid of public speaking? Absolutely. Okay, how did you overcome that? It's a deeper question than that. You okay. know, actually, I could go into the pivotal thing. You know, what, what made me decide to go do what I'm doing now? Cause this leads into that for me, 2015, I was racing cars and I had a, a major car accident at the drag strip. I hit a concrete wall at 130 miles per hour in a Dodge Viper. I was trying to be the first nine second gen five in the country. It was a sponsored car by a shop and something in the rear suspension broke at the top of third gear. And so I had a near death experience. I was facing a wall at 130 miles per hour. And I actually, in that moment I said to myself, well, here I go. And I didn't know if I was going to die or not, but the weird thing about it is I felt overwhelming sense of peacefulness in that moment. I didn't feel fear. I didn't have like rejection or I didn't have like a life passing before my eyes, any of that. I was just like, here I go. I'm steering straight. The car's going hard left. It's doing it with or or without me. And that peacefulness is what really transformed me because even after I got out of the car, you know, it was sliding and I was was conscious and it was dark and I just remember just staying awake, stay awake, stay awake because I didn't want to catch on fire. And car came to a rest and I pried the door open because I hit that side and the car's just demolished. There's wheels off the car. It's all totaled on every body panel. And I'm just sitting there thinking and, and they put me in the back of the ambulance and I'm sitting in their back and the paramedic, she's inspecting me and asking me questions to see if I have a concussion and I'm answering clearly. And, and at the end of the, the inspection, she's like, can I point out something really unusual? I was like, oh man, here it goes. Like, it's going to be what, what now? Like my leg backwards or, you know, or is my back sticking out of my, my skin or, you know, like what's, what's she going to say? And she said, you know, people have major accidents out here all the time and, and you're remarkably calm. 
It's like, I've never seen that. Your heart rate's calm. You don't have the adrenaline shakes. You're answering the questions clearly. And I was like, I am calm. I'm, I'm just as calm as I'm speaking right now. And I didn't understand why, you know, what, what, you know but I started to look back because you know, I can still vividly, this is only 2015. I can still vividly remember that night, the whole sequence of it. And what was really going through my mind at that time, I was sitting in the back of the ambulance, literally looking at the wreckage, singing, why am I still here? Is there, is there a bigger purpose or why did I survive? I didn't have no major injuries. I was sore for, for a week or so, but I had no major injuries. And, and the next logical question is, well, what if I would have died? And then the next question becomes, well, how would I have been remembered? And I would have been remembered a lot like you knew me from the last 20 years as nice guy, financially successful, has cool cars, right? That's how the check boxes. I mean, you and I both know people have passed away in the same scene and the motorcycles. And it's always like so-and-so was nice, so-and-so gone too soon, so-and-so nice car, nice bike, whatever, right? That's really superficial, man. I've been a high performer. I've been pushing myself my whole life, but I was really worried about putting myself out there because I had childhood bullies. I have, I have a skin condition, vitiligo. So I'm like covered with white spots, you know, and, I, and, and people used to make fun of me when I was a kid. And so I realized like if I could just be successful in the shadows, I can do that, you know, and that's what kind of pushed me into introvert. My friends knew I wasn't an introvert. Like I'm pretty open with my friends, but like in public, no, dude, I didn't like being on camera. I didn't like my recorded voice probably because I didn't like being on camera, right? It's like you start to compound all the negative, pessimistic stuff about you. So I became really successful hiding behind company logos and not being on camera, just avoiding that whole situation. And and after that accident, Sean, I really started focusing on what if I would have died? You know, how would I have been remembered? Like, And that becomes something everybody should consider. Like if you're literally going to die today because no time is guaranteed, your heart could literally stop while we're talking, don't do that, but it could literally happen, right? <laughs> How would you be remembered today? You know, and if, you, if you, even better, it's like you take a pen and paper like just like this. Mm-hmm. And if you were to spend a couple hours really thinking about that and writing out your eulogy, like if your, your spouse was to write this or your kids or your parents were going to write, and you might write three different versions of this, like some of my clients have done. Mm-hmm. And if that's not an emotional experience that you're literally crying on top of that paper, you're probably not being honest with yourself, really, you know? And so if you go through that emotional thought, like, dude, if this is my last day, this is how I'd be remembered, it's either going to tell you, like, you've done everything well or you're, you're, you're fucking slacking. Like, you could do a whole lot more than this, right? And so post-accident, I really started focusing on what is my purpose, how am I going to impact the world? Because clearly like dying a rich dude with cool cars, being nice is not, that's not enough. I've only directly impacted the close proximity people that were in my friend circle or people that I had mentored or family. That's it. I said, I have way more capability and way more potential to impact way more people than just the close proximity because of my own insecurities, right? Didn't want to put myself out there. And the book that's in my mind, I said, I could write a book to, help people start businesses. I've done it and have helped other people start their businesses. 12 people from LS1 Tech staff members have built seven, eight, and nine-figure businesses. Jeez. And they were always telling me, like, you should be coaching this. You should be teaching this. Like, oh, no, I got a job. I got family. I've got a business I'm running. All the excuses. But what it really was is I was hiding from that, the cameras. I didn't want to put myself out there. I had a comfortable life, right? Post-accident, I started realizing... I'm hiding. 
And the funny thing about this dude is that book was in my mind for about five years before I started typing it. And I started writing that at the end of 2017, early 2018. It came out in May of 18. And it was kind of a cowardly way of me getting what was in my mind out to the public because I never written a book before, you know, and on my vision board, January 1st, I shared it with the group. I said, I'm going to write a book this year. It's going to be a number one bestseller on Amazon. I actually put the logo right there on the center of the graphic, you know, the cars that I want to own and houses and vacations, a vision board. People laughed. Some of the people that used to be friends of mine, they laughed. They're like, who's this guy think he is? Like, he's going to go be Tony Robbins and like write a book and be a bestseller. Like that's some stupid shit. Like I can't believe he walked away from multiple six figure oil career, you know, like this, he's crazy. Right. And it just got to be where a corporate didn't serve me anymore. I started seeing these ethical dilemmas that I had to start becoming a part of those decision-making process. I didn't want to be in that anymore. It's mistreating people and going through that and I had to put my, my purpose ahead of my fear it used to be everybody else's fear. Like you said, everybody else puts their fear ahead of their purpose. And that's how most of us live until we're in a moment where you realize that it could be taken away from you. And I said, man, I need to go put my purpose ahead of my fear. We're all, we all have fear, every one of us. So what do I need to do? You know? And I started writing this book. I was like, man, if it does good, cool. If not cool also, right? I tried, I tried, I put it out there. The world didn't accept it. But then I'm giving it to my editor and Mike Fallett and Mike's reading this book and chapter by chapter, I'm giving him at a time. And he's like, man, this book's going to do really well. I was like, oh, thanks, man. I'm putting a lot of time into it. I think it will too. And probably chapter four, he's like, dude, you're killing it with this book. I think people are going to want to interview you. You might be on radio or TV or podcast. I was like, oh, shit. See, like the whole thing I was trying to avoid by writing a book was still punching me in the face. Like it was coming back and I couldn't avoid it. I was like, that's a sign. It's like, I need to go prepare myself to become the right person to carry what's in this book. And, you know, that's what I did. It's like, okay, just like anybody, we get on Google or something like, how do you go overcome public speaking or fear of that? And they said, join Toastmasters, go join a rotary club, hire a speaking coach. Like, oh, cool. Uh, I'll go join Toastmasters. There's a local one in the woodlands. I'll go join that, see what it's like. And I was nervous. You know, I didn't want to go. It felt like an AA meeting, but it was like people learning how to public speak because everybody's got fear. There's experienced people there that mentor and there's people that are just getting started and everybody's got their different levels of fear. And, you know, most people would put public speaking fear above a fear of death, which is absurd, but it's true, right? So it's always a fear of not failing. It's a fear of being judged. It's a fear of being vulnerable is what most people avoid. It's not comfortable. And... You know, you hear about like the dreams of people like showing up at school with no clothes on, the kind of thing like that. And this, it's the vulnerability is what people fear. It's not the failure. Like we fail all the time. You and I go to the gym. What do we do? We <laughs> fail the last set. You know, your shoelace comes untied. You failed. Eat a bad meal. You failed. And we don't cry about it. And we just get over it. And we go do better the next day. We don't fear failure. We fear what people are going to say about our failure. And like the best example I come up with, let's say you're walking on a sidewalk and you catch your toe on the sidewalk and you, and you stumble, what's the first thing you do? Cuss. <laughs> but, okay. You might cuss, but what do most people do? They look around, man. Make sure nobody else sees. They look around. If that's your first reaction, like you stumble and you almost face plant, but you catch yourself, what do you do? You look around like, did anybody see me? That's innate, man. That's, that's deep shit right mm -hmm. there. So that's what you're combating against when you start to think about doing videos and 
public speaking. You're worried about what other people say or think. You know, it's so funny because now I'm flashing back to all the times that I have tripped. <laughs> and it didn't hit me until just now. It, it, I think it happened recently at the gym walking in. I was doing something, checking an email and, and tripped on the curb on the way up. And there was actually somebody walking up. I gave zero shits. I just didn't even care. But years ago, you're absolutely right. I would have been freaking out, like looking around. You would act like you meant to trip on that yeah, curb. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, the damn curb. curb. Yeah. <laughs> no. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay, so you, you started going to Toastmasters. Mm-hmm. How was that experience? I liked it. And I said, you know, if I'm going to go do this, because I had to prepare myself to be interviewed, right? And the book was coming out in about three months. I was like, man, I need to do the reps. I need to sit in the front of the room instead of hiding in the back. I need to raise my hand every meeting. It's just once a week, right? You know, Monday nights. It's like, I'm going to raise my hand and just just be involved. This is the fastest way I'm going to get results, right? And so I'd learn some strategy or tactic about public speaking and say, well, shit, I need to practice. I don't have an audience, so maybe I'll just do videos because it's public speaking. So I just said, okay, I'll pull out my phone and I'll do a video every single day practicing what I learned that night. And then I'll do that and I repeated that. And I did that for 365 days in a row. I, did, I said, you know, I'm going to do this for a full year. And so I did. I did a video on social media every single day for a full year because it aligns with my brand, right? 365 driven. And I knew I sucked, dude. And I was nervous. And, I, and here's how bad it was. Like, let me explain how like I was uncomfortable doing this, dude. I was consulting for Trans Canada at the time because I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And that's where I met Phil Swanson and... So I would, I'd wear a tie and things like that to go to work. And I didn't have to, I just wanted to do it. I just, just who I am. And I would get back to my truck and I would just, okay, it's time to do a video. Cause I had my tie on and I was like, I'm already here. Like I put the phone in the holder on the dash and I'd push record and I would come up with something maybe one to three minutes long to keep it short and sweet. And I would do 10 takes, man. And probably number seven or eight was like the best one. I'd go, okay, that's the best I can do today. And I would, I'd push you know, upload on the Facebook and Instagram with that. But here's how I didn't like doing it. I was so like self-concerned about that. It's like if somebody walked by in the parking lot, like it could be too, if I saw another human out of my windshield anywhere in the parking lot, I would stop recording and I was in my truck. So it bothered me that much. Yeah. And over time it didn't bother me, but probably at first two months it was like that. And then it got to be probably six months in where I could actually walk around downtown on lunch break and do videos like while people are just walking by. Because like you said, I, I stopped caring what other people thought. And honestly, most people wouldn't even like look at you because they know you're doing something different. Mm-hmm. They, they're so worried about what you think about them that they're not going to make eye contact with you. Dude, I, I've tested this. Like I've gone to a shopping mall and just walked through the shopping mall with my hand, my phone out and doing a video, like a live stream, mm-hmm. just to prove to my group, like, like nobody's looking at me. And I would reverse the camera and it looked like I was doing a selfie, but people walking by didn't know I was videoing them. Like not one person made eye contact with me. Really? Yeah. Because they see you, you're doing something a lot and they don't want to be involved. They just kind of just, they just kind of look away. It's just, you got to go try that. You're going to have to go test yourself. I think yourself. I might do that now. It's funny. Yeah. It's funny. It's a, it's a good human experiment you yeah. know, among many that we're doing right now, right? Yeah. So, yeah, dude, it's the videos helped a lot. And yeah. what I didn't expect was that I was inspiring people. And I'm sure you saw some of those earliest videos too. They weren't that good. I, I use them as examples now. But 
I started to inspire other people that saw me evolving and changing right before their eyes. I'm, I'm documenting the whole process. Like since day one or day negative 100, really negative 365, maybe. Right. But they started to see my improvement through Toastmasters and hiring a speaking coach and doing these kind of things. And they're like, dude, you're not even the same person. Like, it's amazing. I was like, thank you. Cause I don't want to be the same person anymore. You know, we want to evolve the episode, you know, we're talking about. Yep. Well, that's one of the things that's, that's been very inspiring and motivating for me is mm-hmm. to watch this journey that you've gone on and are, ha- are going on, I should say. And, and it is, it's, it's one of the things that, that has continued to, to motivate me because I've seen the progress that you have been able to make. And I'm seeing the progress in myself whenever I go back and, and look at my early content and videos and listen to myself on the podcast. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, my, my first few episodes, I would take six, seven, eight takes and then splice it all together. Oh, and then you can list, you can hear the different inflection points in your voice oh, yeah. and like, oh my God. You got that four hour, one hour episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's, and now I'm much more comfortable. I can do an entire episode like we're doing, mm-hmm. or even whenever I create just episodes with myself only, you know, I can talk 10, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And if I slip up, I slip up, whatever, we're human. I yeah. just keep on rolling with yeah. it. So it's been, it's been a learning experience for me. So that being said, what is the biggest lesson you have learned through this process? Hmm. I think really just not worrying about what other people think about you. That That is the number one thing that holds everybody back from pursuing their potential. I mean, we all know what our potential could be. I think most of us also think too small. I think if you surround yourself with other people who see potential just like you do and other people, they're going to see what your real potential is. They're going to challenge your small thinking. I mean, when I wrote that book, dude, I used to talk about impacting thousands of people. And then it sold a thousand copies the first week. And I said, wow, should I say I'm going to start impacting 10,000 people? That sounds weird. How about I'm going to go impact 100,000 people. I mean, that sounds weird. I built automotive communities with 500,000 members already. So I was just thinking I got big numbers, but I, I didn't believe in myself because I was reestablishing who I was and and going into a different thing and teaching people how I had 10 cars, you know, and a lot of people were asking along the way the whole time and I would give that advice and they got those results. So I knew the results worked, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't being public about it. And so I said, maybe I'm going to teach those people how I got this. And, and I also started to see a lot of things in entrepreneurship and personal development space. I disagreed with, I consume that material just like you do. I like the books. I like the podcasts. I like the YouTubes. And I saw a lot of people just teaching a bunch of bullshit that they've never achieved in their life. And dude, I've read New York times, bestselling books that I thought were fantastic books. It's like, man, that's a great book. I got some takeaways from it. Let me go do some Google research on this author to see like what they achieved. And like, I want to learn more about this person that wrote the book. And it was disheartening to find that some of them hadn't achieved shit in their lives. And that book is what made them famous. And it's like, well, if they didn't achieve the things they're teaching in their book, like who did they learn it from? Because that's the real source, right? Like they didn't learn from examples. Yeah. I mean, how do you have a leadership book if you've never been a leader? Like that's, that's weird, you know? So I started to see this kind of thing. And that's actually one of the things that kind of kept me out of that space for a while. It's like, man, I don't want to be lumped into the same box with all these people doing fake shit and selling courses that really are teaching things they've never achieved themselves. And, you know, people becoming rich from writing a book versus, you know, actually showing things in a practical manner and have results. And so I had to reinvent myself that way too. So I just understood that 
no, I'm going to go be a thought leader. I'm going to go just call out the bullshit. And I do that really well. I just, I just don't tolerate it. And I actually don't even align myself with people who have high influence. I try not to even, if, unless I know about it or I don't know about it, it may happen. I'm not going to say I'm perfect, but there's people out there that I look at. They're, they're, they got influence. They got followers. They got, they got groups and stuff. And I'm like, I just, I don't align with that person. I just don't think that they're doing things ethically. I think that they're focused on the money more than the result. They focused on the lifestyle. They have the immaturity with money, just like I did when I first had money. That's like, it's just not who I want to align with because I'm past that, you know? Yeah. Go make as much money as possible. Go, go make millions if that's within your potential. But Understand that that's not the focus of what you're, you should be doing. It should be a result of the value that you create in this world, right? I didn't think about making millions of dollars with websites. It happened because I did things right and I did things for the right reasons. Never thought about selling it. We got approached, right? Helped other people build companies and as equity partners and stuff like that. And they've sold. Like Our intention was growing a successful business. Later, we said, hey, what do you want to do next? Are you getting bored of this? Like, yeah, let's, well, let's work on exiting. Let's build some plan for the next three years to exit, right? So you start to understand, like, success is a, it's a, it's a result more than a goal. I think if you just do the right things and take the right actions, you're going to get the success. It's inevitable if you're doing the right thing. So Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So what is your mission today? I'm going to change the leg, the generational legacy of millions of people by helping them with confidence and business principles. That's why I'm here. It took me a couple of years after that accident to realize that, you know, when you start to think about what is your purpose and how do you make impact and do you start a 501c3 nonprofit? Do you be a philanthropist? Do you go on missions? I mean, there's a lot of different ways to make impact, but you need to ask yourself, what's the best way you, you yourself is going to make impact because everybody's got a different answer. Right. And I started looking back and it really thinking about what is it that people keep asking me advice on? It's always busy. It's always been business, man. And it's because I put myself out there as someone who loves business, right? Even as a kid, I was reading Forbes and entrepreneur and cause I didn't have money. Like for me, entrepreneurship was never like a thing. It was like, that's how I make extra money because I don't have the things I want. So if I got to go pick up extra shifts for a third or second or third job, then why don't I just start a business? Right. So it was a way for me to, to get a lifestyle and the things that I wanted for my life before I was worried about impact, right? My twenties and thirties. And I enjoy the, the, the business side. I, I think of it like a game. I used to game and play video games and board games. And to me, business is a game. Money is a score. It's a reward. It's a result. The rules of the game are laws and taxes and regulations. Like those are the rules, right? It's like, so you get, everybody's got the same rules. Okay. How do we win this game? Right. And so I've always been fascinated with business because one entrepreneurs have a little bit, uh, we like our freedom. We like to be a little bit self, you know, independent and, you know, not everybody wants to be that and I get that, but that's what pushes us. You know, we're, we're, we're nonconformists a lot of times we, we don't always fit in with the, the masses and that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm fine with that. But dude, my purpose now is just to help people the things I, I can help them with is confidence and business principles. And that's the best way I'm going to impact this world. And if 365 Driven grows into a community, which it will of millions of people, and we're teaching them to do things ethically and the right reasons and grow things and focus on business and success and independence, and that's what we're going to do. I love it. 
Now I know one of the one of the ways you do this in the past, let's see, year and a half or so is by hosting events. And I know that you have one coming up here in November. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yep. So tell us a little bit about it. I started to see that some of the other business leaders and group leaders started to go into hiding in 2020 with COVID, you know, and, and they were fear. They were just fearful, right? And I, we all know that's a real virus and people have died. That's not the that's not the thing. It's just that people were looking for leaders. People were not looking for people to go hide and cower and, and act you know, weak, right? And so I would say the first six months, I'll give people credit because nobody knew the real results. Like we didn't know. Everybody kind of had a little bit of fear, a little bit of skepticism, but mostly fear because we didn't have any data. And when you start seeing the data come out and like, okay, it's mostly affecting older people, people with pre-existing conditions, obese people, like, okay, you start to see a pattern form. Okay, well, I'm not elderly. I don't have pre-existing conditions and I'm not obese at all. So I'm pretty low risk, probably got a 99.89% chance of survival if I get it, right? So, okay, I assess that risk. I'm going to take my own risks. And I said, well, who's my group? Well, they're high-driven people who are usually physically fit that are also, you know, middle middle to low risk. I said, I know who my group is. They're also the people that are less fear, you know, living in fear. They just want to go do things. They want to be independent. It's like, okay. Well, all these other people are canceling their own events to, you know, pacify and, and like look like they're virtue signaling because they're doing things for the greater good of the world. Like, it's like, fuck that. It's like, that's not who my people are. It's like, my people want to get off their keyboards and actually go do things in business. So I actually launched our first event in October of last year. And, you know, that was in Utah. We hiked Zion National Park. We had these amazing speakers come in, three to four day event. And I said, hey, that was a good thing. So we did it again early this year in spring. We went up to Montana and we hiked in Glacier National Park. We whitewater rafted. We did a day of speaking. And so they're almost like destination getaways. They're like vacations for entrepreneurs and business owners to come out and network. And the main thing that's different about my events is that Lisa and I, we love to vacation anyways. We're going to go whether the group's there or not, right? So let's start taking people to these bucket list items and giving them an experience that's a physical challenge as well as the mental challenge because they'll get the mental challenge from the day of business speakers that are usually formerly guests of my show. And we'll do some physical challenges like this one that's coming up in November will be 17th through 19th. We rented out a racetrack, road course up there. It used to be Bondurant Racing School. It's called Radford Racing now. Dodge Hellcats, 700 horsepower cars. We got 40 of them rented. And that's the limitation of the size of the group is we can do 40 people. So that'll be a full day of course-led, instructed driving school, and then a full day of business speaking and a full day on the ranch that we're all staying at, the resort, to kind of socialize. And one of the things I like about my events is that I make sure that the speakers don't just come in, speak, and then get on their jet and leave, right? Because a lot of times you go to these events, these people are headline speakers. They, they come in, they speak, they hang out in the VIP room only, you never see them, never meet them. And I've been that speaker before, right? And so you're like, this sucks. Like there's a thousand people out there. How come I can't go out and hang out with them and I can interact and get some feedback? And like, I'm, I'm a person too. I'm a speaker, but I'm a person. Oh, VIP only, you know, because they paid extra. They they, they want to meet with you. I was like, I get that it's a money thing, but that's not the right thing, right? So I said, that that pro- that's a problem with me. So my event's our speakers go racing with us and they go whitewater rafting. I mean, we had a guy that sold a company for a billion dollars in Montana 
and he was on the whitewater rafting, right? Two, two people behind me, you know? So you get these people that actually want to go and network with people and build these strong relationships. And then when everybody comes back, you got 40 people that are like lifelong friends because they spent three days. They had mental physical challenge, did some, you know, drinks and dinners and breakfasts and all these different things. All these opportunities happen after the speaking event. So you think about that, like you want to go hang out with people that made, you know, nine figures and billion dollar companies and just have cocktails and, and spend hours with them and ask them anything you want. That's what our meetings are about. Like they're not about like only the stage and you get 45 minutes and that's it. Like, so it's immersive and that's why people like the events. Yeah. I like it. All right. How do people reach you? Easiest thing to do is websites, 365driven.com. So 365driven.com. And you'll find my book, The Society, which is the entrepreneurship group, about 4,000 members right now. And you'll find all my social media things and everything I'm doing over there. All right. Well, Tony, I cannot thank you enough. This has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. So for all of you listening or watching this, please go check out his content. Check out the 365 Driven community. I've had a lot of other guests from the community on the show. Go out there and get it done.